Hello and greetings. We're so glad that you've joined us. We're so glad for your interest in spiritual matters. My name is Ethan and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples in the west side of Los Angeles. The primary message of the New Testament is the gospel, which is the good news of Jesus' life, his death, resurrection, his ascension and lordship, and the imminent return he will make in judgment in Luke 24, 44-48, Acts 2, 13-46, and 1 Corinthians 15. But we should not miss the importance of those who have seen Jesus in life and who testified as the witnesses of his resurrection, the ones through whom we have learned all things that we know about Jesus, and they are his twelve apostles. Jesus specifically chose these men to learn of his teachings, to witness his life and work, and he visited them in his resurrection. He commissioned them to receive power from the Holy Spirit and to go and proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of the whole world. In Matthew 10, 1 through 4, 1818, Luke 24, 44 through 53, and Acts 1, verse 1 through chapter 2 and verse 48. These men would work to turn the world upside down, as it is said in Acts 17, 6 and 7, and were to imitate them as they imitated Christ in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1. The apostles were Simon Peter, the fisherman, the first one listed, the chief spokesman of the twelve, John, the brother of James, and they were the sons of Zebedee, and they, along with Peter, were the three closest to Jesus. John was the disciple whom Jesus loved. They're the rest of the apostles, the minor nine, of whom we learn comparatively less. Andrew, the brother of Peter. Uh, James, as we mentioned, brother John. Philip, Bartholomew, also called Nathaniel. Thomas. Matthew, also called Levi. James, the son of Alphaeus. Thaddeus, also called Judas, the son of James. And Simon, the Canaanite, or Zealot. Uh, Matthias, in Acts chapter 1, would take Judas's place. And then, there's Judas Iscariot, who betray Jesus. And today it is time for us to explore what we can know about Judas Iscariot. He's infamous because of his betrayal of Jesus. And there's a whole lot read into his mentality and his behavior. Is Judas Iscariot basically demonic and satanic, pure evil, as many would perhaps believe? Is he simply misunderstood, as others would suggest? Maybe actually Jesus' most faithful disciple in a twisted sense, as many today are trying to suggest. That's why it's good for us to consider what we can know about Judas in what is revealed in Scripture. In Matthew 10, 1-4, Mark 3, 13-19, Luke 6, 12-16, he's called Judas Iscariot. He's listed as the last disciple. And he's always given the epithet, the one who betrayed Jesus. Always telling us that. Now in John 6, and verse 71, when John speaks of him, he, he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And so we have either Judas Iscariot himself or Judas, son of Iscariot. Son of Simon Iscariot. And so that's, we believe Iscariot is most likely identifying his origins. From Kerioth in Judah, it's a village about 10 miles south of Hebron and mentioned in Joshua 15 and verse 25. Now, the other people who speculate that maybe uh, Iscariot may have something to do with the Sicarii, the Jewish assassins of Romans and Roman sympathizers, or maybe de de deriving from various Aramaic terms uh, for liar, deliverer, or even hanged one. But since his father is named it, and he is named it various times in Scripture, it's most likely indicating that he's of Judea. And in that sense, he's the only disciple to be listed that way. The rest of them are considered as Galilean. Everything we know about them indicates they're Galilean. But Judas is the one from Judah. And it's worth noting that 
Judas Iscariot fully participates as a disciple in Jesus' ministry. In Matthew chapter 10 and Luke chapter 9, Jesus sends out his disciples two by two to go proclaim the kingdom of God. And Judas is one of them. He goes out as well. It's not until the Last Supper that Judas Iscariot is separated out from among the twelve. Until then, he sees what Jesus does, he hears his teaching, he works to proclaim the message as the other eleven did, and so on and so forth. In John chapter 6, Beginning in verse 66, Jesus taught about eating his body and drinking his blood, and we're told that many of his disciples did not follow him any longer. Jesus asked the twelve if they would depart as well. And then Simon Peter answers with this great confession, on behalf of the twelve, and we know it's on behalf of the twelve because of the language he uses. He doesn't say, to whom where I go. No, he, he says, to whom where we go. To whom... Uh, you have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now, it's important to stop here at this moment and to recognize when he says we, he's speaking on behalf of the twelve. There's no exception made here. That he's speaking on behalf of Judas as well. And Judas does not go away at this point. But at the same time, Jesus answered, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? And John will go on to explain the comment that he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Here's a big question. Does Judas yet know he's going to betray him or not? Uh, the text doesn't seem to indicate that, but it certainly seem, indicates that Jesus knew that Judas was going to be the one who betrayed him. So we notice here that Judas Iscariot is one whom Jesus personally chose to be a disciple. So he said, he's part of the we. He believes Jesus is the Holy One of God, has the words of eternal life, and does not cease following him, even though this difficult teaching has been given. But Jesus calls him a diabolos, a slanderer, a false accuser, one who's doing the work of Satan. It says he's going to say, get behind me, Satan, to Peter, when Peter, in Matthew 16, 23, will put his mind on the things of man and not the things of God, and trying to hinder him from going and becoming the to dying on the cross. So John does speak of this event after it's taken place. But the commentary indicates that Jesus knew well before the event that Jesus' care would betray him. And yet, at the same time, even knowing that, Jesus chose him and loved him as a disciple. So you can see in John 13 and verse 1 that he loved them until the end. At no point does we, do we see any indication that uh, an exception is made for Judas. The next time we see Judas is in John chapter 12. John chapter 12, we're told that uh, six days before the Passover, Jesus was in Bethany, and he had gone to have dinner at Martha and Lazarus' house, and Mary had come, taken a pound of expensive ointment of nard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the whole house was filled with the smell of it. And Judas was one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, John reminds us said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Okay, so Jesus will go on to say, leave her alone that she may keep it for the day of my burial. The poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. So, he, he recognizes 
where Jesus is coming from, so to speak. But he says, if this this is the exception. This is a moment. You always have the poor. You always have an opportunity to help the poor. But this was preparing Jesus for burial. Now, John will add an editorial comment in between that, though. And he says that uh, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So he's an embezzler, and he's a thief. Now, we also should notice, it's very easy to just take this and, and, and run with it, but we've got to notice that in the other accounts, in Matthew 26, 6-13, and Mark 14, 3-9, we're told that some of the disciples, or in fact, all the disciples, are chagrined at what happens, and that they all are wondering this. Why wasn't this sold and given to the poor? So we're not going to doubt or deny that John has, has accurately assessed Judas's motive, but it's not like Judas is the only one who is bothered by this particular event. And so we should keep that in mind. And we do learn that Judas is a thief, but the keeper of the money bag. And of course, the person who's got the money is a person you're putting in great confidence and trust. Now, of course, what's interesting about this is that Jesus would ostensibly know that Judas is, if nothing else, uh, tempted for covetousness, let alone that he is a thief and taken from the money bag. And yet still, Jesus entrusts him with the money bag. That's good for us to, to keep in mind as well. Of course, the big act that for which Judas is known is his betrayal. And we can see this in Mar- Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All stories are told about it. Uh, the general paradigm we can find in Matthew and Mark. In Matthew 26 and Mark 14. After Jesus is anointed there and before the Passover, both these things right after uh, this event happens where uh, Judas uh, asks about this and, and Jesus says, she's prepared me for burial. Judas goes out to the chief priests and asks if they will give him to betray Jesus. And he's given 30 pieces of silver at that point, and now he looks for an opportunity. Now, during the supper in these two chronicles, but before the Lord's Supper, so during the Passover, but before the Lord's Supper is inaugurated, uh, Jesus speaks that, about his impending betrayal. And that the one who is going to betray him has dipped his hand in the dish with him. And it, and everybody's wondering among themselves who it is. And Jesus gives this up to Judas. He then says that uh, it, this is happening according to what is written. And that uh, woe to the one who accomplishes it. Judas asked if it's him, and Jesus says he has spoken thus. Actually, the dipping, the dipping is later with John, excuse me. Um, in the Garden of Gethsemane, then, and at this point, Judas leaves. He comes in the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas comes and indicates that the one is the one he's going to kiss. He says, greetings, Rabbi, kisses him. Jesus tells him, friend, do what you came to do. Luke adds a couple details. He says that Satan entered into Judas at the beginning when he's looking for the time to betray him. When there's an absence of a crowd... Um, Jesus does indicate that he will be betrayed by the one who eats with him, but he does it after the Lord's Supper is inaugurated, and Judas is not explicitly mentioned then. And at the point of betrayal, when Judas kiss, would kiss him, Luke does not portray it as if it actually happens, but John, Jesus asks, would, do you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? In Luke 22. Now in John chapter 13, we're told in, in the beginning here, John, John does not talk about the uh, 
earliest conference with the chief priest, he just says in verse 2 that the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Okay. After washing the disciples' feet, including Judas's feet, Jesus becomes troubled in the heart, testifies that there's going to be one who betrayed him. And they all look at each other, and they wonder, well, who's going to, who, who, who's going to do that? And um, Peter then motions to John to ask Jesus who, did, who it is. And Jesus then takes the sop, I said earlier, this is actually where it's in John, not in Matthew Mark, takes the bread, gives it to Judas, and he tells Judas to do quickly what he's about to do. And, and John will even comment further, and all the rest didn't really understand what this is what that meant. Uh, some thought that it, because he had the money bag, Jesus was telling him to buy something for the feast, or he should give something to the poor. So the Jews takes the morsel and then goes out, and, and it's night. Uh, Judas then comes to the garden with soldiers in John chapter uh, 18, uh, but there's no uh, commentary given. And when we look at these different stories, they harmonize pretty well. Um, Satan enters Judas, or I mean, Judas falls for the temptation that Satan provides. He confers with the high priest, and having received the prophetic amount of money, 30 pieces of silver from Zechariah 11:12, he looks for this opportunity to betray Jesus. He participates in much of the Last Supper with Jesus, perhaps even the whole Lord's Supper. He's he identified as a betrayer. He then leaves to accomplish the deed, and he betrays Jesus with a kiss in the Garden of Gethsemane. The next time that we see him is uh, his remorse and suicide. Matthew relates the account that once Jesus was condemned, and they bound him and gave him over to Pilate. In verse 3, when he saw that he was betrayed, condemned, he changed his mind, it says, and that uh, he, he, he uh, repented himself, and he wanted to return the 30 pieces of silver. And he said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And the priest said, well, what's that to us? See, to it yourself. He throws the money down the temple, and he went and he hanged himself. And the priests uh, took the money and said, well, we can't put it back in the treasury. It's blood money. And so instead they bought a potter's field in which uh, strangers were buried. It was called Field of Blood until the day that Matthew wrote it. And Matthew connects it then to the fulfilled prophecy in Zechari Jeremiah, he says, but it's really in Zechariah 11, 12, 13. And we see this in Matthew 27, 2 through 10. Now, it gets mentioned by Luke, but it's in Acts, after it happens. In fact, it's uh, between uh, Jesus' ascension and the day of Pentecost, at the end of chapter 1, Peter establishes that it was according to prophecy that Judas was going to betray Jesus. And uh, he associates that, that his, he had received his portion, but now his house is left desolate, and his office should be taken by another, from Psalm 69.25 and 109, 9-15. And so that's why they appoint Matthias to take Judas's place. Okay? Now, Luke makes a parenthetical explanation, verse 18 and 19, that he, he had bought a field with the 30 pieces of silver, and that he fell headlong and burst open the middle, and his bowels gushed out. And it became known to everybody in Jerusalem, and the place was called Akeldama in Aramaic, or field of blood. Now, it's been very hard to necessarily harmonize these stories, but you can do something of the sort. That Judas goes and hangs himself over the field, that his body falls and his entrails all gush out, and that either he had already purchased that field, or the high priest had purchased that field, uh, and it was called Akeldama, the field of blood, and that's where foreigners were buried. And that's what we see about Judas Iscariot in Scripture. So what are we going to make of Judas Iscariot? Well... There's a lot of different ways people look at Judas. 
To many people, he's a very greedy, self-absorbed thief, and he's thinking about his own profit no matter what. And this view takes a lot about John's account, and he emphasizes that Judas is the devil in John 6.71. He's the thief of John chapter 12. And a lot of people who think of it this way will think that Judas may have done what he did out of spite, that he had been humiliated there before Jesus in John 12, and after being lectured goes and tries to betray Jesus and does so, uh, and that he his conscience burns him just as quickly later, and he takes the easy way out by killing himself. And now that's a possible portrait. I mean, all I mean that's all based upon uh, of a reconstruction of some of the things we see in John, especially. But it seems to devolve almost into caricature, where Judas becomes almost pure evil. And a lot of people made a lot about Jesus' pronouncement about woe and the one who betrayed him. That was better that he would never been born. To the point where Dante, in his Inferno, sees Judas uh, with uh, Brutus uh, really right in front of of the devil uh, in that frozen icy area at the very last ninth circle of hell, uh, frozen solid in Satan's company. And it's very easy... An understandable impulse to just want to write Judas Iscariot off as pathologically evil, to excoriate him and to view him entirely unsympathetically. We want to do that because of the the horrific thing that he did in betraying Jesus. But that's really hard to reconcile with many of the details that we learn about Judas. That the evangelists give every indication that Judas does believe in Jesus, and he's an active part of the work and ministry. And Judas repents in a sort. He confesses his sin. Because things don't work out the way he thought they were going to work out. That's the least that we get from what we see in Matthew 27. And so Judas is most likely not pure evil. We need to resist the temptation to see him one-dimensionally. Now, on the other hand, people, both ancient and modern, have attempted to rehabilitate Judas Iscariot to extreme levels to suggest he's actually the most faithful disciple, willing to do what none of the rest would do. This is seen in the Gnostic Gospel of Judas, uh, which was rediscovered recently. It's a great acclaim. And it's also in the novel and film, The Last Temptation of Christ. And these perspectives glorify Judas as the one who understood that Jesus had to die. And so he was the one who had the guts to go and to let uh, the, the, to get all this stuff to happen. And <clears throat> this is a very attractive view for a lot of people who are trying to upend traditional belief in Jesus and go for the most sensational idea but it's completely unsustainable in light of biblical evidence. We've said that there's probably more to Judas Iscariot than being a thief and an opportunist, but there's certainly not less than that. He is a thief and an opportunist. Uh, Judas's remorse in Matthew 27, 3-4 is hard to reconcile, because if he uh, was resolute in what he had done, he would not have needed to say, I've sinned by uh, condemning innocent, by uh, betraying innocent blood. And furthermore, the idea that Jesus is this is the way Jesus wanted to happen, and he was the closest disciple, doesn't work well with Jesus' declaration in Matthew twenty six twenty four, that uh, woe to the one who betrays the Son of Man. It had been better if he had never been born, and that he calls him a devil in John six seventy one. That, that certainly Jesus is saying these things from a place of pain and a place of of of. Uh, of, of betrayal, of, of, of the fact that he has loved somebody who is returning, returning his love in such an, a terrible way. Uh, but nevertheless, this is certainly not a positive way of looking at it. So Judas is not pure evil, but he's also not a sterling example of righteousness and bravery either. 
So how are we going to make sense of Judas Iscariot? And this is really difficult because we have seemingly contradictory points of view in mind. He's a thief whom Satan successfully tempts. He's a believing disciple of Jesus who repented and confessed his sin and in a worldly way attempted to atone for what he did. And so he's a complex character, at least a little bit more complex than we would have imagined at first. And he proves all too human in his temptations. Now there's different ways that we can try to make some sense about what he's doing if we take the whole picture in mind, uh, both in terms of what Judas would have seen and in the world in which Judas inhabited. Maybe Judas is a profiteer. Because in Luke 4 and verse 30, in John 8, 59 and 10, 39, uh, both Luke and John testify that there are times where Jesus has gotten himself into very difficult circumstances. In Nazareth, they're leading uh, him up a hillside to throw him over. And uh, in John, two times he is cornered by the Jews. One time they have stones picked up to stone him. Uh, they're, they're trying to kill him. And it says that he has just escaped from their midst. Now, to believe that he was able just to turn around and walk right through them without them realizing who it was... Uh, seems almost impossible to believe, that it makes much more sense to believe this is a miraculous departure, that all of a sudden he vanished, all of a sudden he uh, maybe changed form, uh, or, or something happened where he escaped their grasp. And so, Judas has seen that sometimes when Jesus is in difficult times, he's able to get out of it. He's the Son of God. Judas has great confidence in Jesus as the Son of God. Sometimes we we look at uh, his act of betrayal as pure faithlessness. But if he's thinking about it in terms of the money, he might be thinking of it in a very in a way where he has a lot of confidence in who Jesus is. That, hey, I'm able to make 30 pieces of silver. <clears throat> I'm able to make the authorities think like they're doing something. He'll escape like he always does. I've made a little money. He'll be fine. Everything will work out. And he can carry on as before. Now, the, the benefit of this view is it makes a lot of sense of his repentance. Because all of a sudden, Jesus is condemned. He sees, wait a second, Jesus is not getting out of this one like he got out of the ones beforehand. And all of a sudden, the immensity and enormity of what he's done catches up with him. And he probably now hears the words of Jesus ringing in the ears about his betrayal. And he's just crushed with this recognition of his sinfulness. And he goes and gives the money, confesses his sin, uh, takes his own life, being racked with guilt. So that's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is that he might be a kingdom instigator. That for good reason, perhaps, the evangelists emphasize Judas's origins. He's from Judah. And therefore, as a Judean, very much opposed to the Romans, and he's also he's looking for the Messiah. Uh, very maybe Jews believes that Jesus is the Christ. He's looking for the coming of the kingdom, which, even to the other disciples, looks more like a final battle between the Romans and Jesus than anything that will actually take place. And in this view, Judas is betraying Jesus out of frustration. A way to make money, sure, possibly, but out of frustration. This is going to be the catalyst. Now I'm going to provoke the contest where Jesus will show himself for who he is. And he's going to start defeating these forces. It's not for nothing that they're mostly Roman forces that that uh, Judas brings with him to get this whole revolution started. Now, 
if these were his intentions about getting the kingdom going, it does instigate the kingdom, but not at all the way he intended. And so again, when Jesus is betrayed, uh, Judas realizes that, you know, no, this is not the way it's supposed to go. This is not how it's going to happen. And again, racked with guilt, feels remorse, recognizes Jesus' innocence and his guilt, and kills himself. And it's also probably worth pointing out that those two possibilities are not mutually incompatible. That he could both want to profit, think, hey, he'll get out of it. Hey, uh, he can maybe get the kingdom going this way. Maybe it's a win in all these ways. But of course, in the end, it goes disastrously wrong. And... Uh, Judas takes his own life. But in the end, on this side of the resurrection, we're probably not going to know for certain what motivated Judas Iscariot. And it's one of those great questions uh, in Scripture for which we have very little evidence. And different ways we can reconstruct that evidence. Whereas we may now understand what motivated him in the end, fully. There are lessons that we can gain from his conduct and his relationship with Jesus. And in fact, one of the most overlooked elements of Judas Iscariot is his place in Jesus' ministry. Uh, the evangelists uh, put us on the negative to begin with, that he's a betrayer. And um, so we always look at Judas negatively. But Jesus chose him as a disciple. Jesus worked with him as a disciple. Taught him. And from all we can tell, Judas was all in as a disciple. And the whole time, Jesus knew that Judas would betray him in John six seventy one. What's interesting is why all the evangelists frame him negatively from the beginning. They yet, when they discuss the you know the Last Supper, when Jesus said, "One of you is going to betray me," the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John don't say, and all the disciples turn and look at Judas. They asked, who among us would do it? It was not automatically Judas. John knows he's a thief. When did John learn he was a thief? Did John know he was a thief while he was a disciple? Or is this something he learned by inspiration later? And so, what's interesting is that it was not immediately obvious to the disciples that Judas was going to be the one who would betray him. That there was an open enough question that they're wondering who among them would do it. Now, is it necessary to fulfill prophecy? Yes, absolutely. But why do prophecies exist in the first place? A lot of times we let that just kind of be a, a, a cop-out for thought. Well, uh, this had to happen because it was prophesied. Well, does God just decide to arbitrarily do things just to make them fit prophecy? Or is there something behind even the fact that it's prophesied? In Psalm 55... David speaks about the agony of betrayal. How if it was not uh, an enemy who, who had caused him grief. He could handle that. It was in fact a sweet, close companion. That the proximity and relationship is what makes this thing of betrayal so strong. If you're not very close to somebody and they betray you, it doesn't feel pleasant, but that person wasn't very close anyway. But when it's one of the closest people to you, one of your best friends, one of your closest companions, and he proves to be the betrayer, that pain is all the more agonizing. And it's made a lot awful because you're blindsided by betrayal. But can you imagine knowing who the betrayer is? And yet still choosing him, working with him, treating them no different than the others. 
despite it. At least of other nine. The others are among the nine, if not the three. This is perhaps one of Jesus' great demonstrations of his love for everyone. And that he loved even though, while we were sinners, while we were weak, while we were ungodly, that if he's able to love Judas, knowing what Judas is going to do to him, we can know that he loves us. And we need to love others like Jesus loved. And that means we need to love others like the way Jesus loved Judas. That even those whom we think will betray us, or those who we think will do harm to us, we need to love them and treat them well anyway. Romans 5, 6 through 11, 1 John 4, 7 through 21. Like, it's a great lesson about Judas is that he is a human and not a monster. We want to make him a monster because who would want to betray the one they believe was a Christ? We want to make Judas into a demon because that makes him thoroughly other. And we can say, and heap all kinds of invective upon him and to think, well, I would never do such a thing. How could he have done that? And put him off to the side. But does that really do any justice to Jesus, Judas, and the rest of the apostles? Would Jesus really have chosen a pathological monster? And if he had, how would the other disciples not have perceived that danger earlier? Now, we're not trying to say that we should turn Judas into a martyr or a, a very sympathetic character. No, no, he's an unsympathetic character. He's the He, he ends up being uh, the worst kind of bad guy in the story because he's the betrayer. He's the one from inside. He's the mole. He's the fifth column. But his humanity should serve as a warning to us. Judas cared nothing for the poor but wanted to get money from embezzlement. We like to think, well, that's just awful, that's just Judas. But how many times do we see among even people we would expect better of that, in fact, they have been embezzling funds or they have fallen for covetousness and we've seen what their desire for wealth has done to them in Ephesians 5, 3 and 5, 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 10. Not for nothing does he have the root of money, the, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils and those who uh, go after them are pierced with many pangs. Now, if Judas's concern involved catalyzing the conflict in any way, it also goes to show the difficulties that come with unfailing conviction about how one is sure something is supposed to go down. I mean, think about it. If he is so certain this is the way it has to be and it wants to force Jesus' hand, uh, look at how it backfires immensely. Yes, indeed, Satan entered Judas and tempted him to do what he ended up doing. But is that the Satan, can he not tempt us today to do something similar? James 1, 13-16, 1 Peter 5 and verse 8. No, Judas, we, do, we do not do justice to the story by making Judas a new pathological monster. In fact, he's all too human. And the reason that we can't put him off too far is because we need to learn to avoid the dangers. We need to avoid the pitfalls of the love of money and to be so uh, subsumed with the way we see how things should go that we end up betraying Jesus and betraying all that he is about uh, in his name as Judas did. And of course, the great contrast that goes on in the Gospels, and, and deliberately so, is between Peter and Judas. The difference between godly grief and repentance and worldly grief and repentance. The end of chapter 26 of Matthew, just before chapter 27 of Matthew, uh, we're told about Peter's denial of the Lord. That Peter was asked three times, you, you were the with him. And he said, I was not. I do not know him. And then the, co the, the rooster crows. He recognizes what he does. He goes and he whips 
weeps bitterly. We're then told Jesus is, is condemned, taken to Pilate, and then we're told what Judas does, that he betrayed the Lord, realized what he had done, confessed his sin, gave back the money, and went and killed himself. In Matthew 27, 1-10. Peter, meanwhile, repented as well, but he returned to be with other disciples. He saw Jesus in the resurrection, and he was restored where he three times had denied the Lord. Jesus asked him three times, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he is gently brought back and, 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 and told to feed my sheep, tend my lambs. And this is a powerful demonstration uh, of a difference that Paul elaborates upon in 2 Corinthians, the 7th chapter. 2 Corinthians 7, beginning in verse 8. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though, although I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. Judas experienced worldly grief and repentance. He recognized he had sinned, was racked with guilt, but he didn't turn to the Lord. He was consumed in his grief, and he killed himself. Peter experienced godly grief and repentance. He recognized he had sinned, was racked with guilt, but he turned back to the Lord. And he found forgiveness and restoration there. And he and healing. And he did not return to his sin, but was in fact provoked all the more to stand firm for Jesus and to uh, testify to Jesus. And, and where he had once denied him to confess him boldly and to confound the authorities. And it's an interesting thought experiment. What if Judas Exterior had experienced godly grief and repentance? What if he had recognized the message what he had done, but recognized that Jesus was full of forgiveness and did not kill himself? Now, perhaps it's uh, the, the demise was inherent in the prophetic decree that uh, better they had never been born because from the beginning it was known this is the way it was going to be and it was not going to be any other way, and therefore it's academic. But we see in Judas an instructive lesson that worldly grief and repentance only lead to destruction, pain, and misery because there's no relief from it. And he killed himself. There are a lot of people who live their lives where they maintain that worldly grief, where they are continually racked with guilt and, about, and regrets about the things that they have done, and that paralyzes them and brings them down and, and, and causes them to wallow in misery, even if they don't end their own lives. It certainly, as Paul says, produces death, ultimately. may not kill themselves, but at least all that which is contrary to, to, to life, as God would have us to live. And so, it, Jesus is accurate about Judas. It would have been better had he never been born. Matthew 26 and verse 24. And that's what we can say about Judas. He's a disciple of Jesus who betrayed Jesus. Why? In spite? To make a buck? To instigate the kingdom? We're not going to be able to know for sure the side of the resurrection. But there's a lot we can learn from him. We can see the great power of Jesus' love. And as much as he loved and chose and worked with Judas. We see the real and present danger betraying the Lord for things that we may prize that are ultimately not worth nearly as much as He. And we see what happens to the one who is consumed by worldly grief and repentance. And that is why we do well to serve the Lord as His disciples, to affirm His Lordship, to follow Him, to not betray Him in any way. 
that we may obtain the resurrection with him and in him. We again thank you for your participation and your interest here. We hope that you've been benefited by this. If you've got some questions or comments, maybe you have uh, some ideas how, what, how, what was going on in Judas' mind that you'd like to talk about. Maybe you would just need to talk to somebody. Maybe you have a prayer request. Maybe you need to learn what it takes to follow the Lord Jesus. If we can be of any service, please let me know. Please contact me through my website at deverbovitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. Or, if you're interested in learning more about the Venture to Christ, you can find out more about us online at venturechristchrist.org, and you can also find us in many forms of social media. We again thank you. Have a great day.